You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. Later in the program, we have Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. But first, Deep Dive. This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. We are looking into the Opioid Settlement Fund and how the money will be distributed. First, we have an update from the Monroe County Coroner's Office. On May 3rd, at the Monroe County Commissioner's Meeting, Monroe County Coroner Joni Stalkup gave an update on opioid-related deaths in the community this last year compared to previous years. So um, I just wanted to come and give you all an update on, I know opioid crisis has been um, kind of forefront in the news, and I wanted to give you an update on my office and what we're seeing. Um, last year, in 2022, we had a total of 64 overdose-related deaths. 45 of those were, were directly related to fentanyl. Um, they may have had other substances in their system. However, fentanyl would have been the main one that caused their death. Of those 64, 24 were female, 40 were male. We had a total of 406 deaths that came through my office, um, whether it be as a phone consult uh, referral or um, actually going out on scene and investigating the death on scene. Um, to put it in contrast, in 2018, we had 28 overdose deaths. 12 of those were fentanyl. So since 2018, you can see the stark contrast um, between the two numbers. In 2019, it was 26 with five containing fentanyl. Um, the big jump happened in 2020 when we went from, in 2019, we had 26 overdose-related deaths to 51. So there was a big jump between 2019 and 2020. It may have been, um, some of it may have been associated with the pandemic. People were staying home more, um, more time on their hands to figure out what they were going to do during the time we were locked down, that kind of situation. Um, people turning to other substances to kind of deal with what was going on in the world, that type of situation. So um, as I, as I've stated, we have also had an increase in overall calls in 2018. We had a total of 201 investigated deaths last year was 406. So you can see there is a big jump in those numbers. It has steadily climbed through the last five years. Currently this year, we've had 16 overdose-related deaths that are confirmed or that are pending, and um, 
that which would bring our number to 20, which is just, just horrible that we're seeing that many already. And we're only at the beginning of May. Um, we've had 146 investigated deaths already this year through our office. So I anticipate our number will hit that 400 mark again. Commissioner Penny Githens commented that although some individuals are not included in the number of people who have passed away from opioid overdoses, some are still injured from their near-death experiences. She also asked Dahlkup to give more information on the age range of those who had passed away. Well, and, and we've heard from others um, that when somebody overdoses and they're brought back with Narcan, um, that it often causes some brain damage. And so if you had somebody that's been brought back multiple times, you're suffering from multiple instances, potentially of brain damage. And those are things that you just don't heal from in the same way that a broken bone will heal. I also, you gave a similar presentation to the Substance Use Disorder Awareness Commission um, about 10 days ago, 12 days ago, and I was surprised by the age range that you gave us. Um, would you share that with the community too? Stalkup responded that the demographics are varied and touched on how it has similarly affected other counties in Indiana. Substance use doesn't um, discriminate. It, it's all ages, uh, socioeconomic, um, all genders, as you know, female and male. We, I've given you a contrast with that. Age range is anywhere from as young as 17 to as old as 70. It, it's anywhere in between. The majority of them fall between the ages of mid-20s to 50, and that's a big, broad range. But if you narrowed it down, you would probably have just as many in the late, their late 20s, 30s, as you would in their late 40s, 50s. Um, so it's it's all over the board. And like I said, it doesn't discriminate. It's throughout. So... Um, it's definitely something that is eye-opening when you see these numbers. And just this year alone, in one week, we had four overdose-related deaths. And, you know, the, it, it's sad. It's a lot of, all of these deaths um, should not be taking place. But I don't have a good answer for how to stop it. Um, I There, you know, there is... We do have more committees in place to get some things going. Um, I know there's a, the recent team that's been created is the SOFR team, which addresses uh, suicide and substance use, overdose deaths, that type of, of thing. So, I mean, it is everywhere. It's across the United States. It's not just affecting Monroe County. It's across the United States. Monroe County does seem like it gets pretty hard, but... When you go look at, you know, Marion County or you know, any other county, any other of the 92 counties in Monroe County or in Indiana, you will see that it's hitting them just as hard. Um, it's just we have a different population than some of the other smaller counties, so they may not have as many, but it's still a lot for them. The statistics show that opioid-related deaths are still on the rise. We reached out to the local chapter of Centerstone, a nonprofit health system that provides mental health and substance abuse services about addiction itself, how substance abuse disorder can be stigmatized, 
And we asked for their proposals on how the settlement money should be used here locally to address the issues the coroner raised. Linda Grove Paul is the vice president of adult services at Centerstone. Her expertise includes addiction, recovery, substance abuse, and mental health. Grove Paul said substance abuse disorder is often mischaracterized and that people should think of it as a biological disease. She pushed back against the stigma associated with the opioid epidemic. They still see it as a moral failing. They don't see it as a disease that it is. It is a biological, um, biochemical disease that is not unlike high blood pressure, diabetes. Uh, does it interface with, you know, like diabetes, your diet, you know, the, the um, uh, substances that you use? Absolutely. But there's still so much stigma around individuals that have a substance use disorder. Um, and I think especially with opioid use disorder, um, there's just a lot of negative connotation. Uh, that is changing because, you know, it really used to be people who used opiates, primarily heroin, they were different people. They were not, you know, mainstream America. Uh, and now what we're seeing is Opioid addiction, addiction is, you know, impacting people across the nation, across demographics. Um, and honestly, it's killing people in a way that is absolutely unprecedented. Um, you know, drug overdose, uh, just from trying, uh, you know, I remember uh, when I was in, you know, high school, early college, if you experimented with them, I mean, that was just kind of a rite of passage. And now, you know, you could experiment once and die. So, you know, I think the consequences are much greater. And as a consequence, I think that the stigma um, is even greater now uh, than it has been previously because a fear. I mean, and so much of the time, I think there's a lot of bias against, you know, things that we're, we're afraid of. But um, to think that a, a addiction is not a disease um, is just not getting the facts and getting the information. There is no question it is a disease. Over the last two years, a national opioid settlement of $26 billion has been negotiated. The first settlement comes from opioid distributors, McKesson, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Burgeon, and opioid manufacturer, Janssen Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and its parent company, Johnson & Johnson. Grove Paul pondered how this portion of the national opioid settlement money should be spent. In her view, we need to prioritize education, prevention, and access to life-saving resources. Having extra funding is not something we should take lightly. And I think, you know, when we're looking at what we're going to spend that money on, it's really important to focus on what works. You know, what does the evidence say we know is effective in treating individuals with substance or opioid addictions? Um, you know, we certainly know, uh, you know, as I was Saying earlier that uh, people are at just great risk of of dying at this point in time, and so we need there needs to be a lot more education and information. You know, talk some about stigma, 
Um, a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions. We want to do as much, you know, prevention, trying to get the word out there so that people understand, but then also aren't afraid to talk about it. So I think, you know, prevention and some education is certainly really important. And we know that that, that works, but also access to life-saving resources like, you know, naloxone, Narcan, um, you know, the fact that that will now be sold over the counter is great. But, you know, people do need to realize that it's important for all of us to have it. I mean, to the extent that you carry it with you, I don't know how many people have, you know, myself included, you observe maybe somebody on the side of the road that, you know, appears to be in distress or passed out or maybe even dead. Like, if you have that on you, you could potentially be saving a life. So it is really important, I think, for um, people to have access to that resource. And there's lots of places you can go to uh, get it for free. Um, I know outside of all of our Centerstone offices, you've got, you know, IRA, you know, places like that. But making sure that you have access to the resources to ensure that people live. She said that additional support is needed for people impacted by the opioid crisis. When it comes to recovery, she said having access to basic needs like housing would be a necessary step in creating tangible solutions for the opioid epidemic. From a treatment standpoint, um, you know, there, Indiana, because it was a Medicaid expansion state that has been, you know, amazing because before that, Individuals with an addiction could not get treatment. There were no dollars. They did not have insurance. And so a lot of people who had been uninsured before, particularly, you know, under poverty level, um, now have access to, um, you know, residential treatment, for example, which is certainly an important part of, you know, kind of the beginning of the journey for people when they decide that you know, that's what they want. But that is not the only thing that people need. Um, and I would say, you know, because there are resources for that, well, that's typically, you know, you're talking a three to four week beginning. Where there really aren't good resources is in recovery housing. So kind of that step down, that next step as you're transitioning back in um, to the community, you need a lot of support. You need to, you know, get a job. You need to do all of the things to maybe get your, your life back in order. And if you don't have, you know, a place to stay to help you transition, it's it's really difficult. And from a treatment provider standpoint, that to me is the biggest missing gap. And I know, you know, at the state, that's certainly what advocate for nationally, you know, same kind of thing. There just aren't the funds or the resources that are going to that next step. And, you know, you're not really going to get people better if all you're doing is giving them 28 days and then flopping them back into the to the environment that they were in before. So that is a, a, a necessary resource. It's also really important to be working with treatment providers that offer the whole continuum or are partnering with other agencies to ensure that people are getting all of the, the pieces they need, which again is, you know, that's evidence-based uh, treatment, um, an expectation that if, you know, you don't meet the need of you know, somebody who's homeless, for example, if you're not helping them find housing, uh, the chances of them being successful and having to stay at the shelter are slim to none. So I think you know, understanding that that continuum and ensuring that people are, are plugged into that. Grove Paul also touched on the Stride Center, a 24-hour crisis diversion center formed by a coalition of community organizations. 
Um, and then the last thing I want to say that I think is really important and I don't feel like has gotten enough airtime um, in Bloomington is, you know, with our, our community partners three years ago, we opened the Stride Center. And the Stride Center is a 24-7, um, you know, drop-in center for anybody who has a mental health or substance emergency. Uh, and we have lots of people who are coming and using it, which is great. And, you know, we've been able to, to show a very significant decrease and inpatient AD utilization for the people who are coming um, to Stride. But that's for 18 years and older. It's 312 uh, Morton Street. The other component of Stride is we have actually added mobile crisis, which is 24-7 mobile crisis unit that is deployed. You call the same number you would for Stride. And we go out uh, to meet with people. So, you know, a lot of the folks that come to us Stride, whether it's you know, maybe law enforcement or first responders, somebody who's overdosed, you know, comes to us, they get connected with us. And if they want to go to treatment or if they're looking for housing or they need, um, you know, some other support or services, uh, we get them connected and they can stay with us until we get them connected and we'll help them get transportation. So it's been really just a game changer uh, in the, the community. And again, that number is the same. And that's really the issue is you have to reach people when they are in crisis. Um, that is usually when you're going to get them in. And traditionally, um, in Indiana in particular, there has not been any funding for crisis services. Now with 988, that is, you know, all we're hoping to change. Senate Bill number one was, you know, a part of that. And some, some infrastructure is being built there. But, you know, what we've done is with grant funding, um, we've started with Stride, sort of a place to go. Uh, mobile, a person to respond, to come with, you know, meet you um, and, you know, get you whatever connection uh, that you need. So um, I think that is a, a tremendous resource. And again, if you see somebody who's overdosed or, you know, the EMT has been called, they refuse to, you know, maybe go to the hospital, but you want to make sure, you know, somebody follows up with them, you know, contacting us and, and getting them connected uh, just makes a huge difference. She emphasized that this is a crisis we are facing as a society. In order to rebuild, she said we need to rethink how we treat people who use drugs. She noted that cultivating a sense of humanity is the first step in building practical solutions. I think it's really important to be having these conversations. And I'm, you know, really glad that you guys are focusing on this because, you know, it is certainly deserving of a deep dive. Um, it, it is a, it is a crisis. Um, you know, every day, you know, a parent finds out that, you know, they, they had a, a kid that they maybe didn't know had, had a drug and, you know, ended up overdosing or, um, you know, it, it destroys our families and it really is destroying our communities. And it, it's not new, you know, it has been going on intergenerationally, um, for years and years, which is really negatively impacted, you know, not only our community, but our country. Um, and until we really get beyond judging or, you know, thinking about this as a personal affliction, um, 
you know, we're never going to really start to rebuild as a community. And I think that's the thing that I've, I've seen in Bloomington, you know, kind of recently. And again, I think the Stride Coalition is a perfect example of everybody in the community, you know, kind of from a leadership standpoint coming together and saying, yeah, what, what are we missing? What do we need to do better? Um, and how do we do that? How do we bring that, um, together? And I think we need to, we need to highlight those successes more. People, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about problems and not necessarily talking about solutions, you know, celebrating success, talking about data, things that are working, hearing from individuals um, who have, you know, walked that path and, you know, what they see uh, working, how it's impacted them, how it's positively impacting the community. Um, and I think if you could spend equal amount of time with that, then it helps to start to break stigma down. You know, the one thing that I know is most of the time people have a tendency to, you know, feel like, oh, well, it's uh, their problem um, until it, you know, they, they know somebody personally. And it's not not just about knowing the problem part, but, you know, seeing them as a human, understanding what's going on in their life and connecting with them in a meaningful way. And then it just changes their perspective. Um, you know, it's like, oh, gosh, you know, I know all the things you dealt with, but you're my best employee. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're human. And I think that's part of what we really have to focus on is really bringing, you know, the humanity um, to what we're doing, but not just talking points. I feel like um, in our community in particular, oftentimes there are a lot of platitudes and not necessarily deep dive focus on what is really going on, what is wor working, you know, what are the steps that we're taking in our community to, you know, try to make things better or, you know, where, where are the problems and what are some of the solutions we need to um, we need to build. So, you know, I think it's, it, it is really looking, you know, more in depth at, you know, what is happening and, and what, what can make it better. We also spoke to the Director of Clinical Development at Indiana Center for Recovery, Jackie Daniels, who has 18 years of experience working on addiction treatment and prevention-related programs. I currently serve at the Indiana Center for Recovery as the Director of Clinical Development, which means I train therapists, I supervise interns. Um, my specialty area is really speaking and training. Um, and I've been with ICFR for the last six years. We actually had our sixth anniversary on Monday. That was the first day that we took a patient six years ago. Cool. And I've worked in addiction in some form, whether prevention, intervention, or treatment for the last 18 years. Daniel said that addiction is complex and not something that can be explained or resolved in simple terms. She shared her experiences with addiction and her research on factors that can lead to addiction. Yeah, I, so I work with families a lot. Our program has um, a family weekend where we invite the family members of our patients to do a two-day back-to-back program so they can understand and better support themselves and their loved ones in recovery. 
Um, and one of the things that we talk about is um, the neurochemistry, just just a complicated word, um, the neurochemistry of how addiction happens for people that have the vulnerability from birth. Um, and something that we talk about is if you look at um, prevention programs like in the school systems and in the United States, a lot of our prevention programs are built on reaching a large amount of children or adolescents. Um, and so they kind of take this model, this model of a program and apply it to thousands of people. Um, those prevention programs can work for, you know, a certain percentage of that thousands of people, but there's always going to be people that are born with and through life circumstances develop other vulnerabilities. And so I describe them as, you know, vulnerabilities versus resiliency factors. And so the other thing that qualifies me is that I'm a person in long-term recovery. Um, and really what that means is I haven't taken a drug or drink um, since December of the year 2000. Um, and as I was kind of in my early recovery, I was trying to understand, like, why, why me and not my other family members or why me and not my other friends? Um, and so I took a lot of classes and did a lot of study on what makes me different than everybody else. Um, and it wasn't just a single fact of I had been prescribed opiates in the late 90s um, for migraines and also for my wisdom teeth extraction. Mm -hmm. And what I remembered from those experiences is an intense feeling of euphoria despite the pain that I felt. Um, and it was that euphoria that kind of kept me coming back to it. Um, and so I was looking, you know, back at my adolescence and in my childhood, and I was like, what is it that happened to me, for example, that made substances a solution? Um, and I, that's where I kind of learned, like, what is, what is it that makes some people different? Um, and some of it is those vulnerabilities. So, for example, um, trauma. Um, and if you think about kind of the perfect storm, take somebody who has um, a genetic component, and we know that with addiction, genetics is a huge factor in the development later on. Um, and like I said, it, genetics does not absolutely make somebody addicted, but it creates a vulnerability. And so for me, the vulnerability was met with genetics, um, some mental health struggles, plus trauma, plus um, poor coping skills, plus um, kind of a poor self-esteem. It was, it was kind of a, a mixture of different things. Um, however, I was fortunate because I had a supportive family. My parents are married and they've been married 52 years. I am a white woman of privilege. I had insurance. I was able to seek treatment. Um, and I didn't, I, I didn't face necessarily disenfranchisement like other people do. And so I think my experience is, is unique. Um, and imagine the people that, for example, have the same vulnerabilities and lack certain resiliency factors, like there is no family support. Um, maybe it's unemployment, maybe it's poverty, maybe it's a lack of 
um, maybe they live in a rural community and there's not as many resources. Maybe they lack insurance. Um, even something as simple as uh, access to the internet um, creates, or I guess you could say it increases the vulnerability. Um, and in a perfect storm where those vulnerabilities kind of outpower or overpower somebody's ability to um, recover or seek help, it's frustrating. <laughs> And part of what's frustrating for me is that um, I see people, you know, I'm I'm one of those people that likes to argue on social media. Um, I should have learned my lesson, <laughs> but the reality is that a lot of people feel like addiction is a choice. Um, and what I usually tell people about that is um, think of an adolescent brain as, you know, the best sports car on the planet and it has a fully functional gas pedal, but it really lacks... Um, a good brake pedal. And so that's basically what you're saying is if, if me at age 14 decided to get intoxicated for the first time was really making a rational decision, despite having, um, not having a fully developed brain to make a really, uh, informed decision. I, I don't, I would debate with anybody that says, you know, it's a choice. Um, I think the first time that I experimented was pretty normal. Um, but I would have no way of knowing, one, that I would continue using until I almost died, and two, that um, I had vulnerabilities that kind of, uh, not predisposed, but, but made it difficult for me to resist, made it easier for my brain to kind of um, latch on to any feeling of euphoria. Um, dopamine plays a big role in the function of what happens in somebody's brain. Um, and I just, I feel a strong sense of resistance to any insinuation that it's somebody's fault. Um, because nobody wakes up in the morning and decides that they're going to abandon their children willingly. Um, the way I think about it is uh, dopamine is the motivation chemical in the brain. <laughs> it keeps us alive. It helps us remember, you know, if we get thirsty, we drink water. Um, it tells us to eat, um, because we know it'll keep us alive. Um, and then eventually with drug use, dopamine levels surge to over 1100 nanograms per deciliter more than if I ate a donut. Um, and if I do that long enough, my brain starts to think that drugs are needed for survival, just like water, food, um, and anything for reproduction. So... You really have to understand the more complex pieces of the brain to really understand what happens, but it's not simple whatsoever. And a lot of people want to make it simple to point fingers um, when, in reality, the opioid epidemic was the perfect storm of multiple things happening at once, um, including a lack of infrastructure for treating mental health and substance use problems in our country. When asked what she believes should be prioritized in Monroe County when considering what to use the opioid settlement funding for, Daniel said that the Indiana Recovery Alliance would be a good choice because it has employees who have experienced addiction themselves. She also said that in combination, Indiana Recovery Alliance, the Monroe County Health Department, and IU Health 
could be able to establish helpful programming if they work together. You know what? I think um, that prevention of overdose and risk starts with the drug user. Um, And when I was in active addiction, somebody who approached me with the same addiction, um, I felt an instantaneous bond with. Um, And so I think some of what we have done is we've taken people without lived experience and put them in the driver's seat of uh, determining what prevention programs are best, what um, treatment programs are best. And what we really need to do is to arm the people that know the streets the best. Um, And for that reason, I feel like um, the Indiana Recovery Alliance really should be empowered to and given some support and infrastructure to do their work. Um, and it, it, I think there's a lot of um, criticism about that because, like, I'm a professional social worker. I feel like I know my field well. I have lived experience. Like, there's a lot of things that I could offer. However, I'm... I'm not just recently using heroin. Um, I've never used a syringe. So there's some things that really don't make me the best person to deliver these messages. Um, I feel like the Indiana Recovery Alliance really meets people where they are as opposed to where we want them to be. Um, and really are in a good position to help people. Um, and I would like to see them supported. I think that the combination of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, the Monroe County Health Department, and, um, you know, IU Health as a, you know, a healthcare leader really could create an awesome program, support each other, um, and, you know, provide naloxone for overdose reversal, um, support more medication-assisted treatment opportunities if people really are interested in that. Um, Because, again, not everybody has an addiction issue or will develop addiction. Some people use drugs because they enjoy it, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they develop an addiction issue, but I still want them to survive. Um, I still want them to not, you know, contract HIV or hepatitis um, unintentionally or unwillingly. So I would like support put in place for them. And I, I'm going to say this and it's probably pretty controversial and I'm, I'm probably not, um, I'm not saying this on behalf of my employer. I'm saying this as a social worker, as a human being, um, I really would like to see safe injection sites supported. Um, I would like to see our drug laws changed. I I just think that a lot of the judgment that people have against people who use drugs um, have developed from policy, um, prevention education. You know, I did the D.A.R.E. program (laughs) this grade, um, and I remember hearing, you know, people that use drugs are having a hard life and are doing bad things. And I instantly thought, well, people that do drugs are bad. And so when I started using drugs, I thought, well, I'm bad. Um, which instantaneously created some shame, which also mm-hmm. made me not want to tell anybody about what was going on. So 
I, I feel like people that have similar paths really need to be holding their hand out to people that are living the same life, um, teaching them how to be safe, um, but also advocating for policy change um, and stigma reduction. Daniels encouraged individuals who are struggling with addiction or know someone who is to reach out and seek help. And I, I think it's really important. Um, but I always, you know, suggest that people um, reach out for help. <laughs> and and not just from, you know, the people struggling with substance use or, um, you know, overdose, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm talking about the family members, too. Like, if I tell people that, you know, one in four families um, loves somebody or lives with somebody that is using substances or has an addictions issue. And if more of us talk to each other, it probably would be less isolating. Um, but what you're getting at, too, is the people that um, shame you back into silence. Um, and I just want families. Um, and loved ones to know, like, people are here and we support you. Um, and we know it's hard, but, you know, don't give up. And that concludes our series on the opioid epidemic. Stay tuned for the next edition of Deep Dive, where we investigate IU's tree inventory. You can call 802-552-3483 or email deepdive at wfhb.org to share your stories, submit feedback, and leave suggestions related to Deep Dive. We'd love to hear from you. Again, the number is Up next, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Once again, the scammers have dropped a couple of dillies right in my lap, or at least on my screen. I got an email that appears to come from Google Forms with the subject line, Transfer for You, number, and then a very official-looking 10-digit number. The email itself starts off in French. It reads, Merci d'avoir rempli le formulaire, if that's how you pronounce it. As George Bernard Shaw said, the French don't care what they do, actually, as long as they pronounce it properly. A website translator says it means, thank you for filling out the form. What form? Below that, there's more French, which I will not attempt because it's got funny little marks on the letters, meaning, here's what was received. Below, in English, the email reads, 
364 days ago, you registered on our platform for automatic cloud Bitcoin mining, parenthesis collecting, end parenthesis, by linking your devices to our platform by IP address. You were not active in your personal account, but the collection of cryptocurrency occurred automatically from your device. Your balance, $145.32 for the last seven days. Gee. Gosh, it looks like I've got 145 bucks coming to me. And there are links to click. One appears to go to Google Docs, but the other says log into your account and goes to a website named Xanpon, X-A-N-P-O-N, dot site, S-I-T-E. Of course, I didn't click on either, and a little web searching revealed that the Xanpon website is owned by somebody in Russia. Danger, Will Robinson. I know I didn't sign up for anything, and as for cryptocurrency, I long ago went down to Black Lumber and bought a ten-foot pole I'm using not to touch it with. I don't want to be invaded, so my reply to the Ruskies is this radio broadcast. And on the same day, a friend of mine got a weird email. He had just bought something at Best Buy, paying with his debit card. And he got an email from a Christine Moore, whose email address starts with Velda. Under the Best Buy and Geek Squad logos, it says, Dear Prime Member, I appreciate your support of the Geek Squad for a whole year. The cost of a 12-month subscription is $399.99. The money will be taken out of your account 24 hours after we've made an attempt to contact you at the registered phone number. Then it says he's got 24 hours to cancel and includes a toll-free phone number. My friend is not a Prime member, and was not asked to or did not sign up for anything, has not received any phone calls, and so far his bank account has not been touched. It looks like Best Buy's computers may be feeding data to someone else. If you go there, pay with a credit card or use cash. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Our feature was produced by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky-Schneider. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. 
For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Haraski-Schneider. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for cool solutions, climate action from the bottom up, coming up next on WFHB.